Those baskets are heading your way. Why don't you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. As a teenager, an adolescent of the 1980s, you can't imagine how thrilled I was to find out that Ralph Macchio, the karate kid who is, wait for it, 57 years old right now, making a comeback 30 years later in the YouTube miniseries Cobra Kai. Anybody watched all this like I have? No, probably not. He's up against his old nemesis, Johnny Lawrence. Remember Johnny Lawrence, sweep the leg, Johnny? Remember that scene? Well, if you remember from the original Karate Kid movie, there's a very famous scene where Pat Morita, who plays Mr. Miyagi, he's supposed to be teaching Daniel's son how to fight. He's supposed to be teaching him karate. But instead, Daniel's son ends up showing up every day at Mr. Miyagi's house and proceeding to paint his fence, sand his deck, and wax his car. Remember this? Wax on, wax off. Brush up, brush down. Right the circle, left the circle. But there's this climatic scene when, when Daniel um, grows frustrated about this. He's not learning karate. He's just doing all of Mr. Miyagi's yard work, and he, and he sort of explodes in rage, and he says, Mr. Miyagi, why am I doing all of this? Aren't you supposed to be teaching me to fight? At which time Mr. Miyagi began to show that all of these movements, all of these things that he had been taking him through were actually teaching him karate. And you see the, the light sort of come on and, and he realizes, Daniel does, that, that everything that he has been doing ultimately makes sense. It all ties together. He, he finally gets it. He understands the why. And, and in essence, that's, that's kind of a picture of what the book of Genesis is for us. It, it's not just about the what's of life, about marriage and sexuality and children and relationships and, and, and creation. It is about all of those things. But fundamentally, Genesis gives us the why. See, a lot of times we, we feel like we're just waxing on, waxing off, brushing up, brushing down as we kind of walk through the dailiness and monotony of our lives. And Genesis reminds us, though, what it's all about. That we are, in fact, image bearers made in the image of God and we are called to do what image bearers are created to do, and that's to represent God, to make him known. Isn't it interesting that beyond the actual word of God where God reveals himself, God's primary way of imaging, picturing, representing himself is through you, is through me. And when we think about the why, that just changes everything, doesn't it? Changes the way that we parent our children and engage our spouse and go to our community group or serve in children's ministries. There's, there's a lot, lot at stake. Today in Genesis 2, though, we find out that God has not just made one kind of image bearer to represent his name, but he, in fact, has made two that are so alike, but yet so different. 
God could have created two that were identical. He could have created like two entirely different sort of species. He could have, he could have done any number of things to call upon mankind to represent himself. But in fact, he creates two. One man and one woman. And the implications for this are vast. They are vast for gender, for sexuality, for marriage, for roles. And that's where we're going to be camping out over these next three weeks. We're going to be talking about all of these things, men and women, in biblical perspective, held up in light of the lens of Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to read, we're going to begin in verse 4 today. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, then I'll tell you where we're, where we're heading. Let's begin reading in verse 4. Moses says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. Earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. 
Lord, this is a gloriously beautiful text. And it's, at the same time, a gloriously difficult text. Because when we see the template that you have given from the foundations of the world for what men and women and marriage and family and sexuality is to be patterned after, but Lord, then we turn and look at our own lives, our own brokenness, our own sin, our own struggles, our own shame. Lord, we want to shrink back Lord, from texts like this, from passages like this. But Lord, that's not the way of the gospel. The gospel calls us into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ so that we might find forgiveness and confession and healing and renewal. And Lord, I can't make that happen. No, no man can. Only you. Through the power of your spirit, by your word. And we pray that you would do it in your name. Amen. We just kind of forecast where we're heading today and then how this kind of relates to the next few weeks. We're going to hover today at about 40,000 feet over this text. Um, we're, we're going to hit on some major themes, but we're going to wait until next week and the following week to sort of drill down and to think about what these principles, these themes actually look like on a ground level in our marriages and homes and families. We're, now, we're going to try to say a few things, a few strategic things today, but there's much, much that we can't say, aren't going to say, are going to, or are going to wait to say, so that we can kind of make sure that we know where our foundations are, where we sort of set up shop, where, where, where the posts and our tents are to be located. And we're going to really talk about two fundamental principles today, the principle of God's design, number one, and then God's distinctions. God's design and God's distinctions. So we're going to just roll right into it under design. Now, if you, if you notice in the text, look down. Around verse 8, Moses begins to go into a, a good deal of detail about this first place that Adam and Eve resided. He, he, he talks I mean, it's, it's interesting, exquisite detail about their first home. This, this, this word Eden literally means paradise, and so there seems to be this, this sort of large area that's set apart. And we say large area because it kind of talks about these four rivers, which they had some barbecue there, right? Wait for it. Okay, good. Yeah, you know we had the work in the Mother's Day jump. But these are four rivers, and, and this is probably a sizable area. There, Moses is talking about precious stones and minerals. He's talking about this tree of knowledge, then the tree of life. And, and now understand something in the commentaries. There's just tons of debate about where, in fact, Eden actually was. Was it in Mesopotamia or on the Persian Gulf? Or There's all sorts of debate. Not the point. Not the point. The point is not where Eden was. The point was what was going on in Eden. See, one of the things that would have just been unmistakable as the Israelites read this, as they were journeying out of Egypt, as they were approaching the promised land, there was, there was, there was one aspect of this narrative, of this story, of the beginning of, of mankind, of man and woman, that they would have known without a shadow of a doubt. And that's simply this. This was a real place. 
These were real people. This was not mythology. This was not some leftover remnant or recapitulation of an existing pagan myth. This wasn't just some sort of figment of Moses' imagination. This was, this, was not, this was not storybook fairy tale. These were real people living in a real place, in real time, in a real relationship before a real God. These people were not living in a paradise that resulted from the fall. In fact, everything that happens in this text, in this story, happens pre-fall. They are living in God's good, perfect, ordered world. Now, that is super important for us because oftentimes we're going to come to texts like this and sort of conveniently located it in the, in the realm of myth, okay? Or in the realm of just kind of mere storytelling or, or allegory. Or, you know, this is kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, I mean, marriage was kind of like this, and men and women were kind of like this, and creation was kind of like this. But, but, but we know, like, we've, we've moved beyond that point. We've matured. We have come to our senses. We are progressing in a greater knowledge of, of who we are as human beings and, and Moses wants to make it clear right away, no, 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 no. This is not some archaic remnant of a far-gone past. This, in fact, is God's perfect creation, his perfect order. Now, we know Genesis 3, and you heard every pastor say it, man can't make it one chapter, okay, without falling into sin. Now, we know in Genesis 3, that sin comes, that brokenness happens, that man and woman are expelled from the garden, that the image of God is marred. But isn't it interesting that when we fast forward to Revelation 22, now remember when man and woman are kicked out of the garden, God sets up up a cherubim, a real cherubim, a real angel with a flaming sword guarding the garden, making sure man uh, does not have access to the tree of life, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But isn't it interesting at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, when it talks about God's people inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth, what does John tell us is at the very center of what will be our new home together? What is there? It's the tree of life. Now, this is significant because what John seems to be saying is that what Jesus Christ is about is about restoring Eden. That, that in this life, despite our brokenness, despite our sin, that Jesus Christ, through his gospel, makes us new as we pursue God's perfect and good design as we see in Genesis 2. We're never going to perfectly get it. In fact, as we'll see in Shortly, we're going to dramatically fall short over and over again. But that should not take away from what we see as God's pure vision for the good life. See, it's one man, one woman, one flesh in an exclusive sexual relationship created and brought together by God. It's his perfect plan. Ray Ortland Jr. says this. He says, marriage is not a human invention. Listen, 
It is a divine revelation. We have no right to redefine it, and we have every reason to revere it. Heartbreaking Time Magazine ran a cover story not too long ago on transgenderism called Beyond He or She, fundamentally about the growing movement across the country for parents to raise their children in gender-free homes or encouraging, giving explicit permission for their children to explore their sexuality, to decide, determine their own gender. Now, not coincidentally, we know that suicide rates in that segment of the population, transsexual population, are extraordinarily, catastrophically high. And we understand why. Our hearts break for our children. Because when we start tinkering, reconstructing, twisting, obliterating, blurring the biblical categories around marriage and gender and sexuality, we are not only marring the image of God, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we're ultimately destroying ourselves. You see, gender is not a social construct. Genesis 2 tells us otherwise. Marriage is not a societal contract. Genesis 2 tells us otherwise. Sexuality is not a consumable commodity. Genesis 2 tells us otherwise. Now, where you're sitting right now, because you're a Bible-believing, Jesus-trusting sort of person maybe, It'd be very easy to to sort of pat ourselves on the back at this point and say, amen, Pastor Paul, you tell them, and them, I don't know who them is, but tell them, tell them about that. That's that's right. This is why our country is going to hell in a handbasket. That's why we're on a descent into Gomorrah. Amen, amen, and and hallelujah. Hey, there we go. (laughs) We're We're about to point the finger at our own selves, brothers, because... Oftentimes, when we do that, we conveniently, do we not, overlook our own sins in this area, the way that we mar God's image. And let me just prepare you for a little dose of bad news for a little bit, okay? Every time, men or women, you click on that site, you buy that pornographic image, you download it on your computer, you watch it, Late at night when the children are in bed, you are marring the image of God. Every bit as much, every bit as much as all those other ways that we just mentioned. When you you sort of have one of those relationships on the side and that sort of of adulterous sort of interaction with someone, but because it's heterosexual and because it's not homosexual, oh, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, I know it's wrong, but it's not as wrong. Oh, yeah, it is. Or those hookups you're having with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and, you know, it's interesting, the statistics show this, that, that for the emerging generation of Christ's followers, of people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when it comes to sexuality and sexual ethics, there's much more of an attitude of, eh, not so much. See, every generation wants to cordon off its own thing from Jesus' lordship, right? 
For mine, it was, it was money or political power, but for this generation, it is sexuality, and it is every bit as destructive. A big one, let's be honest, is divorce. As I, I know some divorces are biblical because of infidelity or because the marital vows have been dissolved through abandonment or some sort of abuse, and I'm not speaking to those. But I am speaking to sort of the laissez-faire, this is sort of a, an excusable sin. Let me, I know I probably shouldn't, but I, if I just kind of divorce my spouse and move on and find someone else, I know God will forgive me after I've had an opportunity to restart my life. But yet we know it's just as destructive because it mars God's grand design that we see in Genesis chapter 2. And let me say, I'm really tempted to want to say a lot of things right now. I really want to just lessen the blow. Can I just, can I just qualify that just for a minute? Let me, can I not just speak to the nuances of your situation? We'll get there, but right now, just let it sit. Let Genesis to God's grand design, just let it rest on our souls for a moment. Let's take an opportunity that we don't often take maybe in the busyness of our lives and say, God, what are you showing me here? What are you showing me about yourself? You see, it's not, it's not merely about sexuality and marriage and gender. It's, it's not ultimately, primarily even about those things. It's about God. See, God says, I have a way I want to represent myself. And it comes through a man and a woman for all the complexities that that involves. That's my chosen way. And, and, and we just need to kind of pause and take the seriousness of that before we start willy-nilly deciding what does and does not fit with our personal framework, our own lives, or culture, or what have you. That God has said these things for us because they are good, and they are glorious, and they are gracious. And most importantly, they honor him. So that's God's design. Let's look secondly at God's distinctions. Look down at verses 19 through 20. Now it says that God is sort of, and I'm trying to picture this exactly what this is like, like, like in my parents' time, like this is, is this the stag line at the dance or what, what's happening here, right? They're, God's bringing all these animals, all these, all these compliments, these pairs, trying to find a suitable partner for, for Adam. Now, the word suitable, it just means equal or adequate. Okay, he, he wasn't, God wasn't looking for a servant for Adam. God wasn't looking for a slave for Adam. God wasn't looking for a pet for Adam. God wasn't looking for a hobby for Adam. He was looking for equal, for Adam's equal an adequate compliment. Not the same. Could have, could have created someone identical to Adam, right? Right out of the dust of the ground. But it says that none of these things were suitable. Now, you can sort of imagine the awkwardness of Adam, right? I mean, it's kind of like growing up when we were at the roller skating ring, and they called for the, uh, you know, the all-couples um, dance, you know, you know, skate around, skate... And everybody sort of like gets that sense of dread and awkwardness and begins looking around. I mean, Adam probably has some sense of that. See, God could have, I mean, understand this, God could have immediately made a partner for Adam. But you have to wonder, why did God make Adam wait? 
Why did God, us, God have us as readers sort of have to wait to this point in the story? And I, I think that the reason is twofold. One, he just wanted to awaken Adam to his need. You're not meant to be alone, Adam. You need someone who's kind of the same, but different. Your complement. Then God does also, Moses also writes this way to awaken us to our need for who we are for a complement. See, verse 18, when it says, it's not good for the man to be alone, not good does not mean like it wasn't optimal for Adam to be alone. No, the, the word is actually emphatically means definitely bad, definitely not good for Adam to be alone. And so he forms Eve from Adam. Understand, again, not out of the dust, just like Adam, but out of his side. So in a sense, Eve made of the same stuff, right? But different. See, not cloning Adam, but complementing Adam. See, it, there's this idea that, that to, to Adam is given these particular roles of naming animals. And, and, and providing names were, were always a sign of, of authority and priority. And so Adam is naming animals, and he is working the ground, and he is tilling the soil, and he is caring for this creation. And God says, Adam, I have created out of your side someone to be a helper to you, to encourage you, to walk alongside of you, to empower you, to be, to use a military term, a force multiplier, so to speak. What you're going to do, Adam, is going to be much more fruitful and much more glorious and joyous because of the compliment that I am giving you. Now, why did God do two different kinds instead of one? Because he could have done one. I think this goes back to this idea of the image of God. I want you to think with me just for a second about who God is. That he is one being in three persons. That he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that within the Godhead, there are not, there, there's not a, it's not that Jesus or the Holy Spirit are any less God than God the Father. In fact, they are one being. They are one substance. They are equal in, in, in dignity and worth. And we see this with man and woman, right? They're both made in the image of God. There's, there, there's not one who's kind of in the image, partially in the image, both in the image of God, both worthy of incredible honor, Incredible glory, incredible respect. But remember, in the Godhead, while there are three persons, there is a distinction in roles. All three members of the Godhead are not identical. See, it's the Father who governs and decrees and rules with authority. It is the Father who, who sends out His Son, right? Right? 
It's, it's his father who decides, I'm going to purchase a bride for my son, and I'm going to send my son to die for that bride. What do we hear Jesus oftentimes saying? I only go where the father tells me to go. Is Jesus any less God? No, 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 that's not the point. The point is that there is a distinction of roles. There's a distinction of function even within the Godhead. And, and while we're going to like plow this territory um, in more depth next week, right now, let's just kind of get it as a category in our mind that a distinction in roles is not inherently inequitable. A distinction of roles and functions between men and women, between um, men and women in the church, men and women in the home, is not inherently a power play. It's, it's, it's not flawed by definition. If it's so, then we have to say the image of God or who God is is also flawed because our patterns of relationship as men and women are patterned not after some patriarchy of 3,000 years ago, not out of some particular movement that seeks to exploit and disempower. No, no, no. It's fundamentally rooted in the very character, person, and image of God. See, Adam and Eve are not an interchangeable singularity, but they are a distinct and different binary. Both represent him, God, in different ways. Do you realize, married couples, that to the extent that you pattern your lives after the roles and functions that Scripture gives us is the extent to which you display the glory of God in your marriage. Outside the Word of God, parents, the place that your children will fundamentally come to know who God is is by who they see you to be in relationship to one another. There's a lot we could say right here, but of course you'll expect me to say that's why you have to come back next week. But let, 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 let me say something, though. I want to circle back around to something I said a minute ago. I want you to look at verses 23 and 24 for a minute. And I do want this to be sort of a lead into next week, a hook, so to speak, something for you to be considering as we go in that direction. Because I don't know where you are. I don't know what your background is. I don't know if this is like crazy talk. I mean, you feel like you've stumbled into the 19th century or so. I don't know where you are. What's your background? What's your baggage with this? But I just want to hold up the biblical ideal for you. Adam says in verse 29, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And then we see down in verse 24, and this is Moses' commentary. The man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. I often say this to, to pre-married couples, but it's true for wherever you are in that spectrum. The goal of your marriage before Jesus Christ, men and women, is one flesh. You see, one of the great, and I, it's not just a temptation, but it's a great danger, I believe, 
among evangelicals, Bible-believing evangelicals. We know we've put our stake in the ground. We're not going to get divorced. No, 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 no. Something that's a really terrible would have to happen for me to get divorced. But functionally, ah, we're just kind of leading separate and independent lives. We're just two parallel train tracks heading down the way. We're kind of like roommates. We, we have an occasional meal together. I'm, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, but you get where I'm going. We're just this oneness stuff. We're just, you know, life's too complicated for that, Pastor Paul. There's kids, and there's money, and there's jobs, and all those sorts of things. Forgetting that it's the pursuit of oneness in marriage that most glorifies him. And by oneness, I don't mean just sexually, although, let me say this, it's not less than that. It's it's not less than that. But sexually, emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, you've heard me say it, I say it to pre-married couples all the time, you're never in neutral in your marriage. Never. You're always moving towards oneness or away from one another in isolation. There's no middle ground. You're moving in one direction or another as a couple. Here's what I want to pray for you as we head into these next couple of weeks together. That God will renew your heart for that. I don't know what's going on in your marriage. I don't know what's, what's happened over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know what baggage you carry. I don't know what your background is. But I do know that God has a vision for you. God has a vision for me. God has a vision for our families that will be honoring and glorifying to him where true, true human flourishing happens. Because before we call you to the table this morning, let me say one last thing. I know there's a lot of sexual brokenness represented in this room. I know there's a lot of marital brokenness. I know we have single moms who were sort of left at the altar, so to speak. We know some of you might have divorces that you regret or remarriages that have only compounded your problems. Some of you might, today's a hard day because you want to be a mom, but you can't be for whatever reason. You want to be married, you are. You can't get pregnant. You, maybe you've been someone who's taken the life of the unborn at some point in your life. It's so easy as broken people when we come to texts like this to bring all of that to the table and to really, really believe that those things more or less define who we are. You know, Pastor Paul, I hear you speak about Genesis 2, but I've blown that. I've blown that. That's, that just seems so lost. What, what you need to know, what I need to know, what we all need to know, is these things are not decisive. The, only, the most decisive thing about you and me is who God says that we are in Jesus Christ. See, the first Adam failed. I mean, think about, think about the first Adam. You, th- you feel bad about yourself? Think about him. All the advantages in the world, right? No sin, no baggage. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, endured and conquered and brings restoration and brings healing.
healing. He brings new life. That's what the gospel is all about. The point of this message is, this is God's design. You messed up. Do better. That's not the point of this message. The point of this message is, this is God's design. You messed up. I messed up. Let's run to Jesus. Because he is the one who makes all things new and restores the image of God in us. Let's pray. Father,